the <coughs> theme, <coughs> theme for the afternoon uh, talk uh, is the uh, exploration of uh, feelings and emotions. Sometimes for the afternoon talk, like today, a few minutes late, it's one of the privileges of being a guru is that one uh, can't be late for one's own talk. <laughs> <coughs> so, in the exploration of uh, the feeling uh, emotional uh, life, I'd like to refer initially to the uh, background uh, of the Buddha, then explore the application and the understanding in the immediacy uh, of our life, and to point to that which is beyond the world of feelings and uh, emotions. So the talk essentially will fall into uh, three uh, areas. Um, in the uh, discovery and the realizations of uh, what matter for a, a human being, the Buddha drew upon the normal, um, everyday uh, experience, used as much as possible the everyday language of the time, which in the area where he lived in northern India, in the Sakyan kingdom and around, was a, a Pali uh, language. And the Brahmins at that time um, felt quite uh, uncomfortable uh, with this and said, but why aren't you um, making reference to the Sanskrit? This is our ancient language, our religion of the, the Brahmins, of the uh, Upanishads, of the, the Vedas, is, is in the Sanskrit there. And there is a, a wealth of course, wonderful and profound insights to be found in, the, in uh, the Sanskrit. And his response uh, was that he just wished to speak the, the language of the people as much as possible. And to some degree, the same kind of uh, spirit and uh, exploration is taking place in the trans transmission of the Dharma from uh, the east to the west. We are drawing upon, in this case, the wisdom found in the Buddha's teachings in the Pali, but seeing its uh, usefulness of particular concepts and themes. One of them, which we've touched upon a few times here, is the value and the importance of mindfulness, of sati. The original sati, like in the Sanskrit Shmurti, it has within the word a dual meaning. It means, of course, mindfulness of what we are experiencing in the present moment, in our inner life, in the senses around, but it also uh, includes, as it does with the Sanskrit as well, um, the significance of mindfulness with regard to re recollection, with regard to uh, memory, and its place and usefulness. And in the major applications of uh, mindfulness, 
what was considered important for a human being, we refer to this briefly and worth remembering, is one, mindfulness of the body and its condition. To be extraordinarily mindful of the body and its condition because it is a place where the sense of I, me and my if you could turn it off it would be five star so the I, me and my very easily lands on the physical life so the mindfulness of the body and the I moving towards it landing on it grasping onto it mindfulness of that whole movement second area the Buddha says of importance here is the world of feelings and the um, influence and the important sometimes beautiful and sometimes difficult feelings which you and I experience and how the, the feelings give shape and influence much else and therefore a human being deeply inquiring into life she or he needs to be deeply interest in, interested in what we feel. What we feel. Every story that arises, the fuel for it is the feeling life. The streams of thoughts, the way we look at the past, the influence of the way we look at the past is the influence of the feelings in the present. The way that you and I give view to the future and our ideas about the future. Not coming from some independent objectivity, but are influenced by the way that we feel towards the future. And so the noticing of the feeling life is a really important area for depth and for uh, human understanding to be in touch with what we feel the third area of what the Buddha regarded as extremely uh, important for areas of mindfulness in the general way is to be mindful and conscious and aware of the state of mind the actual state of mind and what do you and I do with it? And, as we know, if we are in touch with ourselves from the beginning through to the uh, end, end of the day, it might be that there is a huge variety of states of mind. The Pali word, citta, states of mind, includes in it feelings, it includes in it thoughts, it includes in it intentions and interest, likes and dislikes, deep and shallow. Um, and the Buddha refers to eight significant or important states of mind which are really worth being mindful of because of the impact. <coughs> and the wanting mind, whatever that might be about. The wanting mind, but to be aware of the state of mind, he says, which does not have wanting in it. So there's lots of encouragement with mindfulness 
to be mindful in life not only of what is present, in this case the wanting mind, but also at times to be quite clear and conscious about when it is not present. To be mindful, as he says, of the absence of. When sometimes some people, uh, uh, they say to me, um, oh, I'm always so negative. I am always so judgmental. I never do anything right. My life is a complete disaster. Uh, what else? Um, I shouldn't have been born. Uh, whatever it might be. The view which is arising is taking one particular mind state, in this case negativity, and making a gross, insensitive, disrespectful generalization about oneself. One who has done practice, as the teachings encourage, in this case, yes, sometimes there is negativity. There is putting ourselves down. There is fault-finding with uh, other, other people. But one who has done their practice looks at herself, looks at himself, and is quite clear, as in Dharma instructions say, say to us, one is aware right now, hopefully, possibly, right now, this negative mood is not present. Right now, I am not blaming myself. Right now, I'm not finding fault with life. Right now, that is not present. And for every important and especially difficult mind state, and I don't care how difficult, difficult mind state which arises, the Dharma teaching is this, yes, be extraordinarily mindful that it is present, Yes, find out what you're going to do about it. Ask yourself, are there the resources in within me to transform it? There may not be. Do, let us not think and be, delude ourselves that the truth is within us. If it is, where? Don't let's think either that the truth is outside of us. Please tell me where, who's got it. So sometimes we look into our inner life and we say, my gosh, this mind state which I am experiencing, which is problematic to me, the truth is I cannot, in some of them, resolve it myself. I cannot see the truth that liberates, the truth that moves through. I just don't see that. And the Buddha has recognized that. He has spoken of this time and time again and he says because human beings find it hard to know a liberation from the problematic mind state therefore we establish the sangha that means the men and women of practice who have wisdom who have insight and understanding who can contribute to shedding light on that which I can't really shed light on there is no delusion in the Dharma teaching that you have to work it out all by yourself. This is a foolish, naive viewpoint, I have to say, and one hears it. 
and there is no delusion that somebody is going to do it for you. Sangha doesn't work like that. Sangha works on inner exploration, sharing and listening to each other, and sometimes, it doesn't have to be a teacher of course, sometimes we have a communication with another person, or in a small group meeting, and she or he or they talk to us about something of our state of mind, and they shed some light on it for us, we say, ah, now I see clearly, now I understand. That was incredibly inspirational. That was really helpful and insightful. Now I see what needs to be attended to. And we need to recognize and uh, appreciate the good counsel and the good wisdom of others and in this very hall, because I know more than half of you from previous years, there genuinely is a great deal of clarity and uh, wisdom and years of good uh, practice which is of benefit for you and also uh, benefit for others. And this is the Sangha uh, there. <coughs> so, haven't forgotten the eight polarities that um, the Buddha referred to. Being clear of the mind with greed, wanting desire, and the mind without. The mind with negativity, the state of mind with negativity, and the times when that is not present. The state of mind, the word is moha in the Pali, and that includes fear, it includes uh, delusion, it includes being stuck or whatever. Being uh, mindful and clear about the mind in fear or delusion or confusion or caught up in projections, and the mind when it, it isn't in that. I've got to remember the others now that I said they damn it. So, one's, uh, the mind which is confused and the mind which is clear. The mind, heart-mind we're talking of course, the heart-mind which is developing and the heart-mind which is going backwards. Sometimes in practice it's two steps forward, three steps back. Three is an English understatement. Sometimes, I mean I'm out to about five or six I hope, um, uh, the mind which is expansive and the mind which is contracted. And there's a few contracted minds around and as I say again and again, religion specialises far too often in contracting the mind. Narrow-mindedness, sectarianism, cultism. This is narrow-mindedness. The dogma of doing the same old thing again and again. This is the dogma of narrow-mindedness. There's not a chance of liberation with a narrow mind. So you see, one is aware of the expansive heart-mind and one is aware when it's narrow. One is uh, aware of the mind stuck in its problems and issues. One, one is aware of freedom from. More or less eight. So, some <laughs> I didn't, didn't count. Allah is merciful. So sometimes in the rhythm of the day, uh, here, when you are sitting, walking, standing and uh, reclining, in the various postures of the day. Just 
to be aware, as the Buddha commented, of what is present. And when that state of mind and the feeling, which is part of that state, <coughs> pardon me, stops or drops away, and you say, wow, that which was with me is not with me now. In some of the one-to-ones, the, uh, some of you reported <coughs> pardon me, how difficult uh, the first day was. You thought you had arrived for ten days in the Buddhist version of Guantanamo Bay or something there. So the first day was a positive hell realm, uh, etc. Couldn't sleep, cold at, cold at night, not a drop of hot water for miles <laughs> around. Uh, 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 they're pain in the legs, um, uh, mosquitoes flying in in the evening into the meditation hall and said, what could be better? They're sitting still and they're practicing non-violence. <laughs> Dinner time is served, etc. And then there's all the agitations and the restlessness and the anxiety and the, the relentless mantra, the most famous mantra of all meditators. What am I doing here? <laughs> it's been far more successful than Om Mani Padmi Hum, etc. And all of that go through. And now we're into the uh, fourth day there. May not, I mean, some of you may still be there in that state of mind. Allah's not so merciful. Um, and some will say, wow, that isn't present. Today, for some, I feel really settled in. No wish to be anywhere else in the world on this particular day. I'm in the rhythm. I'm appreciating this opportunity to share the noble silence, to uh, listen to the Dharma, to uh, uh, really experience the inner life and see what wisdom and understanding can uh, come from it. So when is aware and mindful of the fact that Monday's states of mind or the other day's states of mind, they've gone. They're not present. Something fresh has come in. And that recognition of that is the encouragement of the Buddha to be aware of what is present and when it's problematic and it's gone, to be equally aware, it is now not present. It is now not present. And therefore we're really keeping in touch, and we are not falling into the nightmare and the falsehood and the lie of continuity and the generalizations, I am always like this. I never can. As the Buddha said, this voice is the voice of Mara. It's the devil inside the human being when we slip into the generalization. So it's not surprising that the Buddha gives so much encouragement to see impermanence, to witness change, to know what is present, to be clear about what is not present and to learn to move with those rhythms. It's a great practice which, in the best understanding, frees us up.
with the feeling uh, life. And I made brief reference uh, this morning. <coughs> it's a beautiful thing to feel. Who wants to be a robot? Who wants to live a mechanistic life? Who wants to go around in life numbed out, deadened? And there genuinely is some danger. And with all of this um, technology uh, around, it's as though we have enormous vehicles for, cumi for communication, you know, put the list of the iPhones and the Wi-Fi and the computers and the, what else do we do, the, 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 the Skype, and what other terrors are there, Facebook, and uh, oh, I can't remember, Twitter, and uh, all, all the other stuff, Ninakin, whatever it's called, and all, all, all this other stuff. All these vehicles are communicating. Has anyone noticed a vast improvement in relationships, <laughs> in relating? In fact, one is in, in competition. There, one sits and has a, a coffee, I see with my daughter. She's not the only one. Ch chatting away about something, and then it rings. Just a minute, Dad. Blah, 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 blah. And she's going off about five or ten minutes about something, and then she says, after ten minutes, what were we talking about, Dad? <coughs> She's in some other realm. They, 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 they should, you know, they've banned smoking from coffee shops. <laughs> I put the vote in for, for banning all mobile phones from coffee shops. The, uh, the, I see a few of you nodding your head up and down. Nice one. Nice one. <laughs> so, in the life, there's all of this communications uh, going on, and there's some value to it though some of the problematic aspects for some uh, uh, people is that it allows mummy and daddy to pursue one anywhere in the world. You know, you can be climbing up Mount Everest and you get a, a call from mummy, the other popular mantra, when are you coming home? <laughs> Doesn't she realise that one is climbing Mount Everest to get as far away from her as possible? <laughs> Did you ever tell her? <laughs> so, the, sometimes there's no escape from, uh, from them. It was e easier in, in 1967. We just, the hippies, we just went on the road and we were, were off and we got our letter every month from post restant and sometimes we'd conveniently forget to go so another month could go by and there's just the occasional contact uh, uh, with them. It's a very nice agreement. <laughs> so these days it takes a little more independence uh, in the, the movement. And then, but one of the dangers is how much one can get out of touch with feeling life. And when I was in uh, one of the uh, European countries, uh, must be a year or two ago, one of the um, uh, women on the, the retreat, she... Uh, told me that when her husband came home in the evening, he would eat the food which she had made, which was a rather poor start, I thought, and then disappear into his computer room. 
So he'd be working all the day and then he would just disappear. And he would make some excuses that he's got a lot of work to do and he's working for this big corporation, etc. But sometimes she'd walk in there and he wasn't. He was doing, looking at something else or whatever. And she said that it was rather like having another woman in the house <laughs> and that he seemed to be preferring to be with the other woman. So he, she spoke to him and she asked him and she pleaded, look, we have a family and we together and there's no need to keep disappearing every evening into the computer room. And he got to the point, she said, if it doesn't change, then um, I'm going to leave you. That's it. I'm, I'm just not putting, putting up because you're not, you're not around during the day and you're not around in the uh, uh, evenings and I have to put any kind of pressure on you to go out in the, over, over the weekend there. And she did. She separated, she got a divorce. And, uh, and she came out with a, a lovely one-liner, memorable one. She said, My ex-husband preferred to have his hands on the other woman in the house i.e. the computer, than on me. I mean, any man who's like that has completely lost it. <laughs> Prefer to have his hands on a computer than on his woman, I mean. I mean, <laughs> ten years of psychotherapy for that one. <laughs> so sometimes the feeling life generates the disconnection. One is beginning to live, sadly, in a very conceptual mental world and it's at the cost of intimacy, of friendship. And therefore, an essential feature of our practice, as the Buddha pointed out, is to really stay in touch with the feeling life. It isn't easy. There are many calls to pull us out uh, of it. And our practice of in touch, being in touch with the feeling life are the feelings which are pleasant, the feelings which are in between <coughs> and the feelings which are unpleasant and painful. So when we're talking about feelings, we're talking about something which is pleasant, in between or painful. With each of these three feelings, as always in life, they have their beauty, they have their importance and their preciousness, and as with all things in life, they have their vulnerability simple term, they have their good side and their bad side, if you want to use you know, simplistic English. And with the pleasant feeling, the positive aspect there is that sometimes from uh, the pleasant feeling there, it can be love, happiness, gratitude, um, appreciation, connectedness, affection, friendship, that pleasant feeling, it moves through the being, the strength of that pleasant feeling, and it extends itself through the body, which is and heart and mind, which is healthy and healing, and of course, in the best sense, it goes to the other, or the others. And there's something lovely about the pleasant feelings, and the Buddha commented, for the most part, Generalization, we know, but he said, for the most part, most human beings in the course of life experience more pleasant feelings than painful feelings, for the most part. Yeah. 
And when you and I are receptive, the sense of wonder and beauty and awe and appreciation and the pleasant feeling in the receptivity can come together. So the one's healthy and, and there's happiness within, there is the pleasant feeling and that pleasant feeling can move itself in its movement through the senses and the eyes will see more, literally, not as well as metaphorically. And there would be greater appreciation because of that movement of that feeling towards colour and movement and the visual and the sky at night and the earth below. And Ian and I were commenting on the uh, beautiful new range of uh, flowers that the abbot has planted uh, here. I don't know, does anybody know the name of them in English? Adelias. Uh, and so you see, and you just look and just there's an appreciation there. And sometimes when we give a little bit more attention to the particular, the flower as an exa example, and we focus and concentrate a little bit more, more will come out. We'll see more beauty. We'll see more colour. We'll sense the support of the earth, the value of light and uh, uh, energy and the environment in which it lives. So when you and I, with the pleasant feeling inside and the power of samadhi, of concentration mm. and interest and attention put that together, we will see more. Life will touch us more. We'll feel a, an appreciation for the wonders of, uh, uh, of, of life. And that's a beautiful factor. And the important element of this, <coughs> from the Buddhist standpoint, it is different from the movement of the pleasant in order to possess. That is the difference. So from the Dharma um, uh, position and, and view and relationship to life, Yes, we move towards, the feeling enters into the dynamic of the senses, in this case, and there is appreciation for, but there isn't any desire to possess, to have, to grab, to take. <coughs> yeah. one, say, one may say, understandably, but how can that apply when, say, I'm going to the market to buy some food, um, I'm going to the uh, uh, store to buy some uh, clothes for myself, uh, etc. I'm going to for something which I like to buy for myself. <coughs> Everyday conventional language, it's true enough. If the spirit and the attitude towards that is one, there is pleasant feeling, there is the movement towards, there is the necessity of the food or something for home or a travel item or a piece of clothing uh, uh, there. It doesn't, the feeling inside again, doesn't feel like there is pressure and one is not imprisoned to choice. No. 
one keeps it rather simple there. There's a certain, I found this particularly during my years as a monk, very beneficial, that, that one is happy and appreciative of finding without a lot of looking, 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 looking there. You know, so sometimes, I think my daughter will forgive me for saying this, no she won't, um, sometimes she and I go shopping. The difference of view is dramatic there. I just can't find what I want, she says. And if it's a pair of shoes, you know, I, I've worn out pairs of shoes walking around the town trying to find a pair of shoes for her. And so sometimes it's not quite right. And you, she always says to me, Dad, you're so lucky. You need to go out and buy something. You seem to find it extremely quickly. Yeah, I said, but I'm not too fussy. You know, if the shoe size fits, it's good enough. You know, <laughs> more or less. You know, not quite so liberal, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so sometimes, <coughs> in the heart and the feeling life, when it's this is the important point, when it's steady, when feeling life is steady, when there is a certain samadhi, that means a certain kind of concentration and there's not a lot of movement of indecision it seems I'm just taking shopping as an example of many others seems that with the pleasant feeling the focus the concentration and uh, the interest with not a lot of movement it does seem that that which one needs comes rather quickly but if the mind is, oh, I don't know, should I get that one, or should I get that, or maybe that, do I need this, should I do that, should I go here, should I go there, etc. That movement is a movement moving backwards and forwards between the pleasant and the unpleasant. The fear of making the wrong decision, the desire to make the right decision, and all of that movement makes it hard to see what one really needs. Because there's too much movement. And the too much movement is due to what? Lack of samadhi, the lack of concentration, the lack of presence, the lack of attention, and the lack of steadiness with the feeling inside. And as a result, our old primitive state of mind called hunter-gatherer is now taking place in the shopping mall. We're, we're, we're no longer, as I wrote in one of my books, we are no longer homo sapiens, we are homo shopians. <laughs> this is called evolution. <laughs> so, feeling life can move to see beauty, to appreciate so much, but it's not a possessive wanting I must have for me. Feeling life in its problematic movement will carry that unhealthy aspect of desire, it will carry dependency uh, uh, on the result, and of course, uh, in all of that, there can be the reaction afterwards as well. Uh, there. Remember, all, nearly all addictions in life started off with the pleasant that was not really attended to. 
the gambler got some pleasant satisfaction that alcoholic got some pleasant satisfaction the junkie got some pleasant satisfaction the sex addict got some pleasant satisfaction whatever it might be so the addictions of the mind start off with the unpleasant with the pleasant and, uh, and because it wasn't worked with and, and looked at and all too humanly it ends up as an addiction and as a nightmare but it started off with the movement of the pleasant in nearly all the cases there so we really want to give care and attention to the pleasant and really allowing it to move in its precious and beautiful ways through the senses sometimes through memory <coughs> sometimes to in a communication and similarly with the unpleasant it has its benefits and it has its problems and sometimes in life we say I don't want to experience unpleasant feelings this is quite often I don't want to experience the un- unpleasant I want a life which is completely pleasant really happy thrilling wonderful picnic oh you'd be lucky life is not a picnic that is for sure and as one of our lovely English poets once commented one can be in one of his poems we can be having a lovely picnic really enjoying it but a storm is coming and sometimes life is just like that sometimes it's the storm of aging the storm of pain and sickness the storm of death uh, and many other kinds as you and I know in our insecure world there's the valuable aspect of the unpleasant and there's the problematic aspect and I'll just deal if I may with the problematic aspect and then the precious significance of the unpleasant uh, uh, aspect of it and how important it is and um, I hope that none of you ever have a completely pleasant life and I mean it but we'll, I'll attend to that in a minute so with the unpleasant which is problematic there is a, a feeling which is unpleasant when the feeling is uh, unpleasant how easy desire and wanting starts to build based on that and on memory and on opinions and on projections and it intensifies the unpleasant somebody has hurt you you have uh, reacted to something past or present and because we haven't been able to work calmly and clearly with the unpleasant feeling which would be experienced by the Buddha of the Buddhas as well as just ordinary people like you and me that from the unpleasant we easily grab what we hear or what was written or what we remember we grab it and that intensifies the grabbing the unpleasant it becomes painful we get angry sometimes very very angry 
And that anger is the fueling and the intensifying into the emotion of the unpleasant. Sometimes the unpleasant doesn't become anger in that volatile, aggressive way, but sometimes there is the unpleasant, I've got in mind politicians, certain politicians <coughs> here, there isn't any expression of the anger, but the unpleasant is there, it goes straight to a very hard, cold mind, decisions are made, and the drones hang around in the air for days in northern Pakistan, bringing terrible pressure and anxiety as those drones hang there, waiting to target a village, an individual, a particular family. There may not have been any emotion between the decisions made by Obama, who I call Obama, and the event in terms of an emotion. But there is a desire born on something unpleasant stuck in the mind and that the desire is to exterminate, is to assassinate, is to kill poor people in northern Pakistan living in desperately poor situations and that situation is being mirrored many places around the world. So sometimes no emotion is there, the feeling is, is, is there and with it comes the desire to get rid of. Because there's no love, no questioning, no looking at the movement of the inner life and the impact on the outer. And I just, just feel for those people in uh, northern Pakistan knowing that up there one of their homes or their village is going to be a target because they hang around there for days. Horrible, horrible, abusive and obscene way of looking at people. So sometimes with the unpleasant, as I say, it comes to a level of emotion. Sometimes it doesn't, uh, but it comes to a level of thought and in some cases to decision-making and the consequences. And we need, need to really watch and be concerned about that movement from those difficult feelings into uh, the, the world that we live in. Because sometimes our words will bomb other people. Sometimes our language will be very destructive. And though we think, I am getting something off my chest, I really need to say this to you, and then we send these bazookas over to some poor person who has to listen and endure it. And we might feel better, I've got it off my chest. But that person, the wound, the emotional wound, can last for years. That feeling of being hurt and being misunderstood and being rejected, the pain of that in the emotional life can go on and on. So one person says, well, I feel better now. But just simply unable to cognize the devastation on the emotional life of another human being. We have to explore ways to learn to work with each other and listen to each other and attend to the, the, the potency of 
pleasant feelings, and all their beauty and wonder, the vulnerability uh, uh, of them, desire, greed, selfish, trying to max, which is trying to maximize pleasure. But we also need to look at the, the uh, unpleasant and the kind of consequences as a human duty, as our Dharma. There's also the potency and the significance of the unpleasant feeling. The unpleasant feeling. And what I've got in mind here, and why I say I hope you don't have a life of consistent pleasant feelings, uh, I think it would be half a life basically, because most significant events which have taken place in this world, in the variety of conditions, a primary condition of that which has been important in this world has not started from the pleasant. It has started from the recognition of suffering, that it is unpleasant to know about, it is unpleasant to feel, it's unpleasant to experience, and in the unpleasant it has been a big resource for revolutionary change. Most significant changes in life have come to people who have felt something is very unsatisfactory, something is problematic, something is painful, something is unsatisfactory, and out of that unpleasant feeling it's brought about the wish for change. And many of you in this room know that very well and it's reflected in your commitment, it's reflected in your work, it's ref reflected in your friendships, it's reflected in your way of uh, looking, and some of those networks and organisations there which are doing extraordinary work, springing to some degree from the unpleasant, this has to change, this must stop. And some people, it's tremendous courage and sometimes you and I have the privilege to meet such people who are doing extraordinary things and putting their life at risk. Staying true to something and it's difficult, therefore it's unpleasant to deal with, it's difficult to live with, but they're keeping steady in that uh, compassionate concern for others. So we want to look inside of ourselves here, finally. The pleasant, I mean it's beneficial, and the passion and the love and the creativity and the wonder and the dynamics and let that flow from the pleasant into the arts, into creativity, into walking on the earth, into the seeing of the flowers and much, much else. Beautiful thing to do. Enjoy. Let the joy be with us. And to acknowledge when the pleasant has become wanting, desire, and problematic. To acknowledge as well the unpleasant when it's reactive into heated emotion, when it's reactive into cold, calculating decisions. But also to recognize the unpleasant when it's also important. And sometimes I find, and perhaps you do as well, sometimes it's not easy to know. Sometimes 
coming into the meditation hall is kind of classic. <coughs> if one sometimes just listen to the thought, what do I go back in there for? Got to sit in there for 45 minutes or an hour. I feel tired. My body aches. I didn't sleep uh, last night. It's all right for these, for Maria and Ian and Christopher. They can go off to Sister Mary's and have a. What do we have for breakfast? Coffee, Italy, eh? other things. Eh? Dear. We won't mention what we have for breakfast. <laughs> and here we are, stuck here with porridge and knee pains. <laughs> Life's not fair. <coughs> and so, in spite of the condition of the body, in spite of the certain basic circumstances uh, uh, there, and in spite of much which is difficult and un un unpleasant, you know, sometimes you are sitting in the meditation hall, you um, come in at four o'clock in the morning, you think, ah, finally. The rest are all in horizontal posture, some other place, now I can just come in and sit in love it just to sit and after about 20 minutes somebody else comes in after half an hour they're snoring away in here <laughs> walls are vibrating all the images are shaking <laughs> etc and quite forgotten that it's uh, the quiet zone and well, they're coming in doing their wonderful pranayama exercises they're breathing in and breathing out <laughs> to sit in the silence and this. <laughs> one's terrified to open one's eyes in case the person is making love to somebody else on the retreat. And you never, <laughs> never know what goes on. And so sometimes we come in and we just want to do our thing. And uh, we forget. We might be doing our thing at the expense of somebody else. <coughs> we might be forgetting the, the preciousness of the noble silence, of the love and respect that we have for each other for the person who's just quietly sitting in, in here in the silence. And we keep that silent period right through. And Maria kindly comes and offers the uh, yoga and gives the yoga class, or Christopher comes at 9.30, etc. And sometimes as well, we may be sitting in the hall and of course, sometimes they, uh, I find for myself, of course, that there may be some itch in the chest or some uh, cough or sneeze or, or whatever. There and again, as much as possible, the kindness for others, obviously, keep the hand over the face, etc. And sometimes we don't realize in the sitting meditation in here how quickly we can get into a pattern and we don't actually hear the sounds that we are making and we can be breathing heavily we can keep clearing not happening very much I must say keep clearing the throat or whatever and we kind of get used to it and we're not really connected with the person who's sitting in front of us or beside us or around or, or whatever and it takes 
not only the, the quiet, the silence of the speech, which is valuable, important, but in a way the next step uh, with that is the silence of the body. And similarly, as much as possible, when we uh, leave the hall, some people are really engaged in their practice, in, in the sitting there, and really just feel there's no need to move, no need to go in anywhere, this is it. And as we leave, as quietly as uh, possible, rather transparently, rather just moving in a very quiet, soundless way, and that's a small but important act of love and uh, uh, kindness and um, support for, for others. So, though our meditation and the flow of our meditation, of course, for a few days, ten days, are looking within, but we're not looking within at the expense of. We're looking within, but we are looking without. We're taking care and respect here, but we're also sensitive and respectful to those who are around. And, in the, and we generate that culture of that, because it's a culture for the full awareness and the full integration and the full waking up and liberation of the whole Sangha without exception. And therefore the Sangha is the community of people who give real support to each other. And that takes place every day here. Let's have a quiet minute, shall we?